Please pronounce your name correctly for me. Yeah, so my name is Sean Stamp, and I'm from the UK. I'm born in Wales, and I'm currently living in three different places. So I'm a bit of a gypsy right now. Which actually lends to the question of like, so your childhood, um, one of the things I always wonder about creative people is sort of how did they get made, you know? So was it uh, parents who were creative, some classes, some life experience, like, you know, teachers, like how did you even get to being creative? Oh, well, that's an interesting one. Yeah. So I was brought up in a single family with my mother and two sisters and my mother was very religious she's a jehovah's witness and she and we grew up in this setting and i remember when i was young i would sit in the church with her and i would always just be kind of scribbling just drawing because i was so goddamn bored (laughs) and there i am blaspheming but i was bored and i think it kind of came from that but then as i look through my family heritage now, like my grandfather on my mother's side, he is very creative. So he was an engineer and he he experimented a lot with photography too. So when I grew up, he had loads of cameras in his home. And I think I got a bit of that from that side of the family. And then when I look at my father, he's always been creative too. So he's... So he's a kind of long-haired, tattooed, mo- like, mo- like motorbiker. So he's totally opposite to my mother. And he was very creative with doing body panels on cars and motorbikes and drawing, you know, making those kind of drawings on the motorbike tanks and stuff like that. So I think I've got it from both sides. Lovely. Yeah, my, my father's a painter and my mother is an interior decorator. So like I know where mine comes from. Oh, that's great. That's a nice combination. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, because you got the sort of the commercial, a little bit of commercial and a little bit of, uh, you know, pleasing other clients and then another side of sort of doing things just to please yourself. So it's a nice balance. Yeah, it is. All right. Now, the first thing that interests me about you is when I look through your CV, I'm fascinated by the fact that you seem to have, um, you must have like a lot of air miles because you seem to be everywhere. Um, going back to the gypsy (laughs) well I saw Armenia the UK (laughs) Belgium Finland I mean you are everywhere well let's not forget that Europe is pretty small in like it's easy to get around Armenia well Armenia is on the cusp it's in the Caucasus so I did a residency in Armenia after doing a residency in the Netherlands so After I finished studying my BA, I then decided to move to South Korea. So I wanted to get some experience teaching. And I just thought, actually, I think the best teachers that I've ever come into contact with are the ones who kind of impart life experience. The other teachers kind of go by the book and you don't necessarily learn anything about life. And I thought, well, I think I'm a little too young to be a teacher just yet, so maybe I need to get some more life experience. So then I then went to do a TEFL, 
and I went to South Korea and taught English. I was like teaching kids from I think the age of like 13 to 18 and I was 23 <laughs> so I was so I was thrown in the deep end and I was kind of like okay sink or swim but I got through it and I really loved teaching the kids and just like you know just engaging with them and just talking about lots of different topics and then during that year being there I continued making artwork and I was kind of trying to get myself into residencies and because there was this whole other world of artist residencies and I didn't know how to go about it and because I just left art school I was like how how does this work you're leading the interview I love it because that's my biggest question for you is you seem <laughs> to have done a lot of artist residencies and I've never done an artist residency and I'm utterly fascinated with um, how to choose one how to apply for one and then what the sort of uh, I guess I don't know beneficial outcomes like sort of like what ones run certain ways that might be better or more useful or whatever for like let's say your work and, and your style of creating mm. yeah that's tricky because I think with a lot of residencies they have a format and they kind of want you to fit into that format. And those are the ones I found really difficult. And because you want this experience of having a residency, and then you have these ones that have this format, and you're like, well, I don't see how my work can fit into this. And in the beginning, you're kind of like making these applications, and you're like, okay, I'll just kind of squeeze my work in there and try and fit into this. And then you just get lots of rejections, you know, and in the beginning, it's quite difficult because you're, you know, you're starting out and you're young and you're like, oh, I'm getting lots of fucking rejections. Okay, maybe my work is not good enough, you know, or maybe or you're more experience. getting a lot of rejections. It's just not an age thing. <laughs> well, there is an age thing too, I've noticed in some of them. It's there like, is there's i, I really i kind of resent the ones that say like oh we only take under 35 years old i know what's that about uh, yeah. i don't understand it why where did somebody choose 35 why not 40 i mean yeah it doesn't matter i'm 50, 47 60. it's not going to help me either way but, i mean look at some of the best artists when they came out when they were like in their 50s 60s 70s you know they just needed time which is what a residency would have given them that's what it's about, yeah. And that's what I've always kind of been aiming for is having time and space to kind of, you know, really get into my work. And I found it quite difficult in the beginning, you know, writing for these residencies, you know, and every single one's different. So, you know, you have to change towards the residency on what you're projecting about your plan to be there and what you will make. And that can be difficult because it... <sighs> Because sometimes you don't know what the hell you're going to make. It's like, well, I just need time, first of all, to be there. And then I'll kind of figure it out once I'm there. And then my first residency I got when I was just finishing up in South Korea was one in the Netherlands, was in the east of the Netherlands, was in Enschede. And it's a great residency. And I, and I was really lucky to get this. So it was funded and they give you a small stipend to make work and it's free so you know it's funded by the local government 
So you have a place to live, you have a studio, you know, you get to meet the local artists. It's fantastic. And this was my first residency, you know, my first entry into the residency world. And I think that was a really nice step into it. Give us a little bit of stuff. Was it a sort of an individual one or like, did you all do group things, like even just meals? So like, you know what I'm talking about? Like there's sort of two major topics where it's sort of like either a residency seems to be sort of very individually focused or it's sort of uh, networking focused where it's about communicating and collaborating and things like this. So was it, which one of those spectrums was it on? That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, this is a while back now, so let me think. <laughs> so yeah, well, this 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 was a two-person residency. So there was another artist I was sharing with called Jew Underwood, and she's Scottish, and she's still a friend now. And we met back in, what is it, 2010, 11, something like this. And we're still friends to this day. I saw her last year. I went to Scotland and saw her, which was lovely. Um, yeah, so with this residency, it was, it's, it's Dutch. So the Dutch are very open-minded. You know, this is what's great about the Dutch and I love the Dutch. So they're very kind of easygoing people. You know, they love planning out, but when it comes down to it, they want you to be open. You know, they want you to engage with people, but they also want you to make your work, you know, so you know, they try and champion you to, you know, have time to invest in your ideas and and try and create new things and experimentation. They they have a different sensitivity and they like experimentation. And I think starting out back then my work was a little bit more abstract. And Jews' work actually was very figurative. And it's funny because now when we both look at our work, we've kind of crossed over. But going back, like how I chose that was just kind of, you know, sending out my application, you know, making a portfolio. And making those portfolios are kind of, you know, the setting to show, you know, whether, you know, you are a, I'm pulling in uh, commas here, professional artist. You know, because I was starting out, I wasn't professional. I was just trying to learn as I was going along. I would still say I'm not professional in some case. It's like, well, I'm an artist. I'm making my work. I'm kind of doing it as I go along because we're all learning. So for me, I remember making a portfolio for this residency, and it was to do with my oil work, which is my vasculum project which is making sculptures and paintings with oil, with crude oil and engineering oils. So I made this project proposal where I had drawings, I had installation images from my degree show. And then I talked about how I thought I was going to use the time there and had you know, just a very kind of vague plan that possibly sounded like I knew what I was doing or wanted to do. Well, this is one of my personal concerns when I look at residencies and I look at the applications because I, I don't even know what kind of work I'm going to be making a week from now, much less a year from now when this residency might occur. And so I'm always afraid that 
I might write a, Hey, I want to do this. The, you know, this is the project I want to work on. And then if I arrive and I work on something completely different that somehow I will, they will disapprove of it, or I will let them down or I won't, or, or I'll come up with a project. And by the time I get there, I realize it's not going to be successful and, and I'll, and you know, I'll fail at it for whatever reason. And, and so there's all these sort of anxiety and concerns about like, if you write something, I feel like you're almost sort of promising to do something and it's whether or not you can deliver on that promise. Yeah, well, that's always kind of the big pressure. But I think that's always an interesting one, what, what, what you said about success and whether it will be a success. But then what is success? That's why I always ask that question. It's like, well, actually, you know, is it a success that I'm just making my work? and I'm getting up in the morning, I'm going to a studio, I'm making my work. That's a, that's a huge success in itself, having that time to do that. You know, right now I don't have my own studio, so that's a different story. But like being able to do that, I would see that as a success in your getting to make what you want to make, regardless whether the other people think it's successful I think you have to do it for yourself first and then you have to pull it out there and then I think it's always nice to have a dialogue with someone and you know get feedback and you know you have a group crit maybe and someone you know gives you something else to think about something new that you haven't thought about and maybe you can take it on board and put it into your work, or maybe you reject it and say, no, I'm quite happy with how it looks. Thank you very much. Oh, and don't get me wrong. A lot of my failure, like my like quote unquote failures, uh, lead me down a path to some better thing, stronger work, whatever. So, I mean, my definition of like succeeding in the work or failing in the work in, in my in my career span is not so much of a concern because I have lots of failures, <laughs> but it's, it's that short term of like, you go to a residency and there, there's an expectation like within that timeline to be able to pull off something strong, you know, something uh, expressive, something completed and you know that kind of thing. It quite honestly, it sort of scares slash intimidates me a little bit. Yeah. Because it's, it's similar to putting on a show and you have a timeline and you're like, okay, I've got to deliver this. Fuck. Okay. Have I got the work ready? Oh, do I have new work to make for it? You know, so there's all these things that's going on. Is it cohesive? Like yeah, you get is all it cohesive? Of it? You know, yeah, yeah. You know, does it all relate to this, you know, the same theme or subject? You know, there's all these different things running through your head. But I think, with the best residencies are the ones that don't demand you to have an end product you know an end result you know because i think really a residency should be to give you time to give you time to experiment to breathe that's it you know Agreed. they sh shouldn't be putting pressure on you to deliver an end an end point because what i found through residencies is that most of my ideas happen during the residency but the actual work from those ideas come about maybe six months later a month later a year later so it's kind of difficult it with i think with some artists with some of my friends those type of residencies work when it's kind of finite and you know you get a show at the end 
And, you know, some artists like that because, you know, it gives them pressure to make something, to deliver. And I don't mind those residencies, but I much prefer doing ones that just give you time. Like there's a residency that I was meant to do this year, but unfortunately it's been postponed till next year. But it's a fellowship and it's in Colorado. It's in, it's the Anderson Ranch. Love the Anderson Ranch so much. Oh, really? Okay. I've not been. So I, well, I, I would be going in October, but. <laughs> it's a beautiful place. Um, I actually did a workshop there back in 2000 and uh, have also had as a guest here, actually one of the professors of uh, pottery, Allegheny Meadows. He's already, he's been on the podcast, um, but the place is amazing. It's gorgeous uh, and it's very, they're very nurturing and supportive. Um, it's a fabulous place. It's one of my top places, certainly in America, as far as residencies and workshops. Yeah, I felt for me that it, it seemed like the right fit and because there was no pressure to make an end body of work it's just they give you time to explore and I thought yeah this is brilliant this is where I've been wanting for a long time and I was very lucky to get that spot and luckily they have deferred it till next year so hopefully I will be going on that next fall yeah the whole place it kind of reminds me of an art school you know they have every single facility so they'll have painting studios sculpture workshop the wood workshop they'll have a photography studio they have a CNC studio, a laser studio. It's great. Metal yeah. smithing. You can like do bronze pours. I mean, the place is amazing. Yeah, yeah. They have everything. So I'm going to be a bit like a kid, just like running around, just trying different things. Yeah, yeah. It's going to be great fun. All right. So let's say now, so like let's say moving forward in your career, if you were to apply or if you were even starting to search for a, a residency that you want to apply for, what are some of the criteria that you look for? Because like for me, it's always everything's paid for because I find the ones that where they expect us to pay like weekly, you know, lodging and stuff. I'm like, I'm not, that's basically a vacation. I could just get an Airbnb for that. Like, why should I go to this red, this, you know, go through this process. So like, you know, what are some of your criteria when you're looking for them? Well, generally I'm looking for ones that will give you a stipend. They give you some money to make the work or if they don't give you that, you know, they give you at least a place to live for free <laughs> and a space to make your work. I have done some paid residencies but generally those have been funded through another body. So I've applied for Arts Council funding. So they've paid for those residencies. Like I did one in Finland, which is called Artales. And this is an amazing place. And because it's not like a normal residency, it's 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 very it's very kind of laid back, but also they have some restrictions. So with communication, with having your phone, you know, it's a bit like a Buddhist retreat where you're, you're not allowed to have communication with the outside world, you know, for a couple of hours, you know, so you can decide, you know, maybe you, you don't want to have the Wi-Fi on for like eight hours a day or something like that. And that's really interesting because then it really forces you to be with yourself. And, you know, you can talk to the other artists, you can walk around in nature because the setting is so beautiful. It's in the countryside, you know, you have fields and fields that you could just walk off into. But I think with the paid ones, 
like that one, it's worth it. It's worth doing. Some of them, like you said, yeah, you can just get an Airbnb. <laughs> you know, and you look at some of them and you're like, what are you offering? You're just offering me an empty room. You know, there's no facilities, there's nothing. But with a place like Artelez, they are offering you facilities. They have a wood workshop, they have a photography workshop, they have all of these different studio spaces. And they even have a sauna. <laughs> I mean, that's great. <laughs> a winter time, that's perfect. Which I did actually. I did my residency in the winter time. And that's how I kind of got to this experimentation stage when I was there, which we'll go into actually, because I feel like you want to ask me a question. <laughs> oh, I just, well, I was just going to mention that the, the reason that I got connected with you actually was through Amanda Marchand, who you met at that residency. Yes, Amanda Marchand. She is amazing. She, she mm. is a fantastic photographer and she really helped me when I was there. She taught me many things that I didn't know about photography because I've always been making photography. I've never considered myself a photographer. I make objects. I'm an artist, but I don't see myself as a photographer because I, and I haven't fully grasped photography in a sense. You know, it's more like alchemy for me. <laughs> you know, I'm kind of very We did our master's program together. Okay, so you really go back. Yeah, we lost touch for a while, but now we're back in touch. Okay, but that's nice. Well, but. But your point about the the alchemy of the different mediums and all this, this is actually something I wanted to ask you about because I sort of struggle with this as my, myself. Uh, I'm traditionally a photographer, a pretty straightforward traditional photographer, but in the past like eight or nine years, I've sort of been expanding out into uh, collage decoupage, sort of layering, painting, sanding, all kinds of other mediums involved in it. And, and I find it a little difficult because you know, like my work at this point doesn't really fit as photography, but it doesn't really fit as painting. And it seems like you sort of fall into that sort of realm of you do mixed media, you work with photography, you do other things. So I like how, how do you find it? Like, what do you, what, do you, what how do you express to the world what you do? Cause they, the art world wants to pigeonhole us. They want to say, oh yeah, they're a photographer and be done with it. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> but but more that's and more artists. <laughs> well, that's my point. Is like more and more artists these days are working in multiple disciplines instead of mm -hmm. a single discipline like yeah. tradition. So, like, so what have you figured out works, and or what kind of problems have you run into with that? Yeah, that's yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, I feel that I've always tried not to be pigeonholed. It's like. Christo and uh, Jean-Claude Jean said, yeah, labels are for bottles, not for people. And, you know, I always stood by that one. For me, I think what I started out in was in painting. And then I went into sculpture and I, I kind of sat quite happily in sculpture. But then I kind of jumped back over it to the fence of painting and then incorporated it all and then went off into photography and it's all kind of merges and then I make installations I make text you know so I don't think that 
I could ever be one sort of artist, you know, in a sense, I would love to just be a painter and get up each day, you do your painting, that's it. <laughs> just <laughs> very purist. But it's not me. It's not who I am. You know, uh, I'm always exploring. Well, beyond that, though, my sense is it's not the time. Like, it, I feel like the times these days encourage creative people to and use and incorporate more disciplines than in the past. Maybe, but I don't know. When you kind of look back through history, you do see some artists who explored with different me like different medias. You know, you you know, let's say you know, textbook Leonardo da Vinci. I mean, he explored with many different me like mediums. He went off and just explored. I mean, Picasso. He was relentless. You know, <laughs> that man was exploring in everything. So, I don't know. I don't know if like. If artists today feel the pressure, you know, the ones in art school feel the pressure to be multimedia artists, I don't know. I think when I was studying, there wasn't that pressure. There, there was just this kind of openness to explore different mediums. So it was different. I graduated with a new genre degree. So like I'm all about interdisciplinary works. <laughs> so yeah you said that you teach so with your students how do they kind of see their work being you know do they see it being you know one genre or or are they kind of trying to branch out well i generally teach undergraduate and oftentimes they are um, subject-based courses so like it will be a photography course or a screen printing course or a very so we don't really get too much into that kind of stuff at that level um but i feel like by the time they get to the end of their program there is a lot more I would call you mixed media interdisciplinary than there are strict sort of like, you know, just, just a painter or just a photographer or just a, you know, just a based in a direct single medium. They, they enjoy integrating at least two, you know, like, I mean, I can think of a lot of photographers who use video, a lot of uh, printmakers that use text as well. I mean, so they sort of like to, expand their potential opportunities which i this is what the question is, is like should we be defining ourselves more precisely or should we be more vague i think that's up to the individual <laughs> well but unfortunately we're part of a larger art world that, that they want to pigeonhole us whether we want to be pigeonholed or not yeah i kind of look at it as that i'm making the work and I'll leave that up to the rest to decide what it is. It's a good attitude to have. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, I think that's it. You know, it's like you said about your photography, how it's moved into painting, you know, in the surface. So with your photographs, do you actually scratch into them and kind of paint them? So it's a bit like Peter Joe Whitkin, which I love his work. Yes, you know, where he like absolutely. scratches into the photography and, you know, he paints it. He's one of my heroes. Um, absolutely. Yes, me as well. Oh, really? Yeah, it's great. Oh, yeah. yeah. I grew up, that was, that was my generation when he sort of came out. That was the, the inspiration of a lot of my professors at the time as well. So, yeah. 
yeah, him, Jan Saudak, and a bunch of those others that sort of do that manipulate. Like we were photographers and very traditional, but then using um, some form of manipulation. Mm. Whatever you know, that was the word we was big back at that time. Of course, that's that word's not trendy these days. Whatever. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> these like trendy bite-sized words that we have every decade <laughs> well i mean I, I, maybe they what they are is they're actually like words that end up uh, in the history will define a, a, a movement or a period in art kind of thing so like that manipulated photography would be like probably 80s and early 90s and i don't know what the, the movement will be called which can it's like when you look at his work in a sense it's timeless but it does it does hark back to the early ages of photography. But then it has lots of symbolism in there. You know, he's a big symbolist, which is part of my work. I make work, you know, that kind of rebounds off symbolist art and Jungian archetype and, you know, lots of psychoanalysis. So yeah, yeah, yeah. He's got it all there. He's got it there. It's great. Oh yeah. yeah. Huge fan. Yeah. Well, my auntie in like introduced him to me. So when I was 13, my auntie, she's a psychologist and I went with her one day to one of her lessons at this university that she was teaching and she left me in the library there and I was like 13 or 14 and I remember just like sitting down at this large table and there was lots of other students learn, you know, learning reading. And I was like flicking through some magazine and then my auntie just dropped these books, huge coffee books right on the table um, and just said, this is fucking art. Look at it. And then she walked off and then I was like, okay. <laughs> And then the books, one was Peter Joe Whitkin, one was Francis Bacon, one was Maplethorpe, mm -hmm. and one was H.R. Geiger. And yeah, she kind of blew off the lid for me, but she knew exactly what she was doing, I guess. Because I really didn't know what art was, in a sense. You know, I'd been to the museums, you know, you know, you see all the marbles, the bronzes, all of, you know, the old, you know, Baroque Rococo paintings and stuff. And well, you're um, in the UK, so absolutely. Yeah, and, you know, that's what art was to me growing up. And then my auntie, who was always this black sheep of the family on my father's side, she, she, she kind of saw something, I'm guessing, in me, and she wanted to break that out, and she just dropped these books. And I remember opening the Maplethorpe book, and it wasn't just his flowers. <laughs> Well, it depends on where the flowers are placed also. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was still in the closet. <laughs> and, and I just remember looking through these pages and I was like looking at these images and I was like just shocked and shocked at the fact that I was looking at these explicit images in front of these students sitting around me on, on this huge table. And I was so you know, aware of myself and just so conscious and embarrassed. And, but then at the same time, looking at these images of like Maplethorpe with, you know, a whip up his ass and just saying, but this is art. My auntie said, this is art. <laughs> and trying to grasp it. 
Yeah, and that was my first introduction to the art world and to contemporary art and to the, you know, the canon of what's been happening. Oh, yeah, that's, that's a great introduction. Joel Peter Wicken, Geiger, Francis Bacon, and and Maplethorpe. Maplethorpe. Yeah. I mean, that's an astounding spread of styles and interests. Yeah. Yeah, she really gave me a good introduction. I still thank her to this day. <laughs> interesting. Oddly, oddly, mostly monochromatic even, too. Yeah, yeah, in a sense. Well, with Bacon, yeah. Yeah, Bacon's the ex- the, Bacon's, the outlier on yeah, that one. Yeah, yeah, but then his 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 figures are kind of monochromatic. You know the way yeah. they're you know layered in a sense. Moving forward, actually, okay. So you mentioned some stuff about like the the these days and trendy words, and or maybe I did. Who knows? Somebody brought it up. Um, social media. Do you use it? Do you like it? How do you engage with it? Does it help you? Does it annoy you? Give me some feedback. <laughs> it does all those things. <laughs> it does excite me. It does annoy me. You know, I mainly use Instagram, social media. I don't use Facebook. I have it. I I never use it. What else do I use? I have Twitter. I really use that too. But with but with Instagram, it kind of made sense to me because it was so image based, and you know that's how I communicate is through images. So that made sense to me. So I've been using that now for, I think, the last three years, I think, religiously. (laughs) Um, And sometimes you get too hooked to it and you're like, okay, this needs to stop. Okay, I remember my Facebook days (laughs) when you would just spend a lot of time on Facebook. Okay. But I think with Instagram, it feels more of an open community, that word community, yeah, it's, it's, it's open source in a sense. So, you know, you can look at so many different things, you know, different topics, different themes, you know, it's, it's, well, but there are the community standards that are on these. So there is a limitation to that. Yeah, it's the wild west, but you do have those community standards, which God knows what that means, because I don't know what community it is. But I think it's difficult for photographers to show their work if it has something, you know, say a nude. So if I want to show a piece of my work that has flesh, has nude, has maybe a chest, you know, it's not, you know, it's just showing a nipple or, you know. Or a penis or whatever. Like you can't do it. Well, yeah, you can't do it. But then, you know, some of my friends who draw and show drawings or watercolors or stuff like that, and they can show fully explicit stuff. And it's like <laughs> just just the other day, I was I was scrolling through and I saw some paintings that were literally, but they were literally a painting of a penis entering a vagina. Like that was the painting, and that was on Instagram, and it was fine, and it had like ten thousand likes. Like it was just ridiculous. But yet, you know, just like a nude person is being censored and i'm like how did that per- and i i know the reason is because the, the community standards guideline says that if it's a photograph of a real person it can be censored if it's any sort of an illustration a painting a sculpture or any sort of sort of representation of that it's somehow legitimate i know which is i don't know it's ridiculous of, it's 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 madness because when you look at some of 
the drawings out there, like some of my friends who are fantastic draughtsmen, and they can draw the most photorealistic drawings or paintings. And you'll see like people giving blowjobs, like cocks going into holes and stuff like this. And you're just like, well, how how is this allowed? And me just showing myself or 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 a model, you know, semi-nude or nude, but just not doing anything, you know, in an act is banned. Well, have you run into any problems with the community standards? Oh yeah, several times. So I kind of stopped posting because I just got fed up of it. So now what I do is I usually show my work through stories because it only lasts for, I think it's 24 hours. So most of the time I kind of get away with it. <laughs> get it in and out before they can, they can censor it. Yeah. And now and then, you know, I've had a couple of censorships from them, but I still continue to show my work through stories. And I kind of like that kind of that timeline, you know, because it's like life, you know, where you'll go to an exhibition, you'll see a piece of work and then, you know, you've left the exhibition, you know, and it's either in your memory or it isn't. And that's why I do my stories. So I just show work, you know, I show what's interesting me, things I've seen, you know, so it just lasts for 24 hours. And then people can see that if, if they choose, instead of it being, you know, a permanent image on your you know, layout on your Instagram story, your feed. Yeah. That can easily be censored at any time ever. Yes. Yeah. And I've had lots of friends who have been kicked off Instagram because of that. And then they've had to set up new accounts and they've, you know, lost their old, in, you know, the Instagram page where they've spent years, you know, just kind of curating the whole thing. So then I thought, oh, well, bugger it. I'm just going to show stories. That's it. Sounds smart. I like it. Yeah, well, it works for now until they censor me again and kick me out. <laughs> until they build an AI that can do it faster and find it on stories. <laughs> yeah, yeah, mm. yeah. Now, I'm not, uh, well, I'm pretty normal. I'm a white heterosexual man. Have you found, have run into any sort of uh, issues with uh, gay or any sort of uh, non-traditional uh, I'm trying to think of like people being rude or I don't even know what the word they trolling and that kind of stuff. Well, over Instagram. No, actually, no, no. I haven't Marvelous. had any of that experience. No, no, no. Great. Yeah. You okay. have you? <laughs> uh, yeah, I've had, well, I've had people be rude and, 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 uh, inconsiderate on Instagram. Yeah. 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 I haven't experienced that yet. No, I know some of my friends do, or some of my friends get hit on a lot through, like, through it. And I'm, <laughs> I'm like, not sure that's a negative thing. <laughs> Why do I get hit on? No one approaches me. <laughs> no, I never put pictures of myself, so that's not going to happen. So I, <laughs> I have a face for radio. No, no. I, 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 it's not, you can put not up my the thing. one in the background. That, that, yeah, I was hot back then. Absolutely. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. yeah, you yeah. Know, I'm not that anymore. <laughs> <laughs> no, 
no, that was my hot period. I was at, that's when I was doing heroin and cocaine and like, I was looking good. You look fabulous, darling. Absolutely. Fabulous Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> well, well, not only that, but I was well, I actually don't recommend doing, going back there. <laughs> well, no, but I was also doing a job that was manual labor at the time. So I was a tour, I was a roadie for, for bands. And so I was touring around wow. with rock and roll bands, like setting up the stages and the sound and everything. So it was like all just like brute for, uh, you know, yeah. hired, I, I hired, hired as a, as a as a muscle not as i was we joked that roadies are basically hired from the neck down <laughs> they they don't pay us to think we're just there to push things and put things in place <laughs> so, yeah, yeah but it must have been fun it must have been a lot of fun i have amazing stories from those times it was great fun yeah but no i'm not going back to my heroin cocaine roadie days that those are past yeah, yeah. That's probably for the best, really, because I don't think we'd be talking now. <laughs> I don't think I'd have my job as a professor. I don't think a lot of things. I think probably I would lose my wife. <laughs> like, there would be a lot of things that, that would happen if that ever happened. Yeah. All right. Um, something else that I noticed on your resume uh, was uh, curating. So you also curate on top of both being an artist and doing your own residencies and creating your own work. You also you know, work collaborate. It seems like you're not just curating solo, but you seem to do collaborative uh, curating as well. So how did you even get into that? Or how were you approached to start it? Um, give us a little background on that. Yeah, well, I think for years, I was always trying to make a group show about, about, you know, various topics. And when I was in Margate, I had a really good friend, Kiara Williams, who Basically, you, you used to be a gallerist, and then she went back to being an artist, but she still runs like little like pop-ups and things like this um, and crits. And I was looking for a space to put on a show, and the theme that I had was about T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland Poem. And T.S. Eliot had lived in Margate for a short amount of time to write part of that poem there about Margate. And Chiara was a fanatic about the poem too. So it just made sense. So we both came together and we, you know, had had this idea to put on a group show and we were like thinking of what artists could, you know, show who who had made work about T.S. Eliot. And then the whole thing Oh, God, I think it took like a year and a half to set up. But that was my first run at being a curator and putting on a group show and getting artists together, managing artists. It's funny when you're on the other side and you're like, oh, (laughs) am I like that too? (laughs) Am am I that much of a pain in the ass? Am I like, absolutely. Am I a drama queen? <laughs> so, yeah, no, yeah, yeah, yeah. They're great. Like we all, we, we all had a great time though. But managing again, going back to teaching, it's, it's, it's managing. You know, you're managing. It's, it's, it's the same. It's the same thing. You know, it's just a different hat. So basically, it took us like a year and a half to curate this show. You know, to get it together, to find the site. So we managed to get hold of the actual building the Nayland Rock, which is where T.S. Eliot had written part of the poem. 
and this was a dilapidated ho- like hotel space this this once victorian you know grand hotel which was like 140 rooms so it was huge like five levels and it's right on the seafront very dramatic very beautiful but the whole place was dilapidated and the new owners were going to turn it into a new plush hotel and before they did that we managed to convince them could we use this for a T.S. Eliot show and then we proposed what we were doing to Turner Contemporary which is the local gallery to Margate and they were doing lots of satellite things and they wanted to include us in their program so then we then had to bumper up a little bit more to another you know professional level so for me that was my first run at curating and I learned a lot going through that you know project planning you know trying to delegate with each artist, going to the studios, doing studio visits, you know, seeing what they're making, what they're thinking, having these dialogues, you know. That was a really fun time to do that. It took a lot of time. I really respect curators for what they do. It's something I wouldn't want to do all the time because I make my own work. I would possibly do one again, but maybe in the future at some point. But I'm much... I'm, I'm much more focused on my own work, you know, ma- you, know, ma- you know, making my own work as time is valuable. But for me, I think to curate, it's definitely something that I enjoyed experiencing. And Kiara Williams, who, who, who was my co-curator, she, she was a great help to kind of lead and kind of show show the ropes because you know there's a lot of things that I didn't know and I was learning along the way it's very difficult to be uh, an independent curator these days especially like because there's also a difference between being a curator who works for an institution or works for a gallery versus being an independent where you're you know pulling yourself up trying to find your own funding trying to find your own support trying to trying to find get connected with additional artists i mean there is so much legwork and meetings and and bureaucracy that gets involved in that it's it's a very difficult daunting task at this point oh yeah and what was difficult was trying to get funding because we applied to the arts council to get funding and they just said you know we didn't meet their criteria and we put in you know a whole program of getting schools involved, doing workshops, all of the things that tick the boxes. And then the Arts Council said, well, they couldn't fund us. So then we then had to go back to the artists and say, you know, we're really sorry, we, we don't have funding, but we're going to put our own money into this and we've got some private funding too. And it was a real shock because, you know, some of the artists that we had was like Su- Susie Hamilton. Um, and she's a fantastic painter. and and her work is really, really strong. We had Wolfgang Tillmans. We had Amanda Marchand. We had Derek Jarman, the Derek Jarman estate, who, who, who loaned work to the show. And Paul Knight, who is now based in Austria, or I think he's in Berlin now. And Simon Foxall. So we had all of these great names, these great artists who were participating. And yet the Arts Council weren't ready to support us. But then it was so strange because on the opening night, 
we had the Arts Council come and then when they walked around the building and they saw the show and they said, oh, we would have funded this. <laughs> and then we said, well, is it possible to get the money now in like retrospect? And they're like, oh, no, you can't. But we would have. But we're funding next time, definitely. Like, oh my see, but the, well, that's the interesting thing is like a lot of times after the fact, people are like, oh, yeah, I would have supported it. Like, so I always wonder what's the element that was missing? Like, so what didn't you do or what criteria didn't you meet that somehow that they didn't grasp your vision enough to fu- to to initially fund it? Did they ever tell you? Mm, no, they didn't. That's always an interesting one. It's like you, you just don't know. <sighs> yes. And that is yeah. my biggest pet peeve in the arts world as a general whole. Like, because you've done you've gotten grants you've also gotten awards you've done residencies and now you've also done this other thing with this funding project my problem is is we as creators we are often writing applications and we send them in and the answers we get are one of two things yes or no but if we're given yes we don't know why we got it we don't know what we did what did we write that somehow convinced people and if the answer is no we get no feedback on what we did wrong and so therefore we don't know what we can do better next time and that's a that's a big gap in the art world that i really wish somebody would address yeah and sometimes the transparency there's no transparency and sometimes i think it just comes down to who you are because maybe, you know, they didn't really know who me and Kiara were. You know, they saw the names of the artists of, you know, say Wolfgang Tillman, Su- you know, Susie Hamilton, Derek Jarman, but they didn't really know who we were, you know, because it was the first time that I was curating. You know, I'm an artist. It was the first time that I was curating. Uh, but even though we were part of the Turner Contemporary program, they still weren't ready to really help us and that was frustrating and because we got to a point where we were like we either cancel this or we just try and just make it happen and we were like we've come so far with this we just need to do it and we just got everything together you know we just went around you know trying to get funding from so many different sources and just like getting travel passes from the local train company for all of the artists to travel back and forth and things like this. So we were just trying to pull so many strings to just make it happen. And we made it happen, which was great. Then we had a really good reception about the whole show. But it's those things like in in the beginning when you're up against a wall in a sense, but then, you know, you face that rejection and it's a big hit in the face and you're just like, okay, fuck. But then I think if you can get past that and just keep going, you know, then I think you stand a good chance of, you know, making something happen, which we did. Yeah. I mean, they always talk about how like part of success in the art world is just continuing to produce, like not, not giving up, not being discouraged, whatever, like being able to just continue is a large part of just being an artist. Well, yeah, I mean, well, yeah, I, well, this is a very kind of outsider example, but look at Henry Daja. I mean, that guy just produced and just produced. <laughs> I love Henry Darger. <laughs> Me too. Man, he's he's amazing. Oh, he's amazing. 
but that guy just produced and produced and sadly no one knew who he was until the end you know but until he his didn't landlord make it for anybody work. else though no but he made thing, it for himself and that was the beautiful thing it. yeah there, there's a guy fred i think it's picker who did this like throne room to the second coming of jesus christ that's in washington dc it was something i saw when i was like five years old and i love this piece because he rented a garage didn't tell his family and he built this 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 throne room to the second coming of jesus christ that he built from trash from the dc school system because he was a janitor and he and then he wrote these like five volume books handwritten in a language that only he and jesus christ would understand and then Brilliant. he died well and then he died and his, his family found this and they're like what in the world and he he did this because he believed it mm. it, it was not for public consumption he didn't think of it as an art piece but he built it because he just believed he needed to build it and i love that sort of unwavering passion and drive to produce something just like henry darger yes yeah, simply for your own pleasure i mean it's amazing yeah i think that's how i look at my own work it's kind of just making it for myself first and then you know at times i will pull it into the world but you know i you know i make a lot of work that people don't get to see just yet but i'm just making the work you know simply for me because i have things to address so for me the work is a conversation it's a conversation with myself and you know then hopefully you know the work will be put out there in a hope that if there's someone out there who is going through something at some point it may help them on some level that's all that i hope that i can achieve with my work it's a great aspiration yeah we all want to connect. I mean, that's the thing is, to a certain extent, creating of art is a desire for others to relate or, or feel related some way. We, we don't feel alone and they don't feel alone because they then see that somebody else is feeling the same way. Like, it, it's just some forms of connection, just another way. Yeah. 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 I totally agree. All right. My last question, though, for you is, um, are you represented by a gallery? No, I'm not at the moment. No, no. Okay. Well, well, so the reason for that question is sort of like, okay, so you make these multimedia things, you do these installations, you work with object-based things. Do you make income from this? Like, do you, is this sustainable at this point? Or, you know, or do you have other side hustles that you have to do? Because like, yeah. you know, I teach and I do other things to supplement all this. Yeah, so I have the day job to make the bills, but but also I do sell my work. So I'm very lucky in that way that I've been commissioned and also I do sell work. And it was kind of interesting over lockdown period because I actually, for the first time, I sold a couple of works via Instagram, which never had happened. And the works that I sold weren't shown on the feed but on the stories you know the 24 hour thing <laughs> so so uh, so you have proof that they work yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> my little theory of the stories but um yeah yeah that was interesting actually so yeah i think 
I've been quite lucky in a sense that, you know, I've managed to sell work and I still continue to sell work and also get commissions. Commissions are always an interesting one because sometimes people will throw a curveball at like at you about what they want and then I have to come back to like to them with what I think they should have because I think if you're commissioning someone there has to be you know of course a dialogue and you're kind of working together but when it comes down to it it's the artist's voice it's it's coming from me so that's always an interesting one and kind of a fine line <laughs> to work I hate through. commissions. I hate them <laughs> with a passion. I mean, every piece that I've done that I've created as a commission, I'm thoroughly embarrassed by because I just let the client walk all over me and, and, and it ended up looking nothing like something that I would produce. Uh, so it's a very difficult yes, thing. Like it I takes a certain kind of personality of the artist to be able to um effectively collaborate with a, com- a commission basically to be able to listen and and sort of push back when necessary and and let them tell you when necessary to to really create something that both they can be proud of and you can be proud of that's a very difficult balance yeah yeah i totally agree there <sighs> yeah what's difficult is 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 that lead you know where you know someone says oh you know i'd love to commission you you know would you you know, make something with flowers. And I'm like, okay, possibly, <laughs> you know, I've got this work that I make, which is with glow flowers, you know, how about this? And they're like, no, I want you to make red flowers. And I'm like, but I have this style of work that I make with red and with glow, you know, and you kind of have to kind of bring them around to you. <laughs> oh, I, I've had, I do, I do figurative work generally, and I've had commissions where people ask me to do landscapes, and then I've even had, I had a commission one time that somebody called me and asked me to do a a pet portrait of their dog, and I was just like, <laughs> no, <laughs> just no. Well, you could have made it different. No, <laughs> you could have made it really fun. No. Oh my God, that's just painful. You could have I lured mean, the dog out of it. Uh, <laughs> just blurred lots of layers. Uh, uh, just the fact that somebody even thought to call me for that, it's just like, I, I was embarrassed. But yeah, no, but I mean... The, that but from the artist side it, it there's a certain thing like some people have the temperament that can that they can do commissions you know mm. like i know some people that do commissions and they do them beautifully and they are very good with working with the clients to really sort of balance that what they need and and how it fits them as artists and and they feel comfortable and happy with the results like that type of temperament and style is it's a it's a unique trait in people uh, that I do not possess. <laughs> mm, mm, yeah. But what about if someone's commissioning you f- for a portrait? Because you do portraiture. <sighs> it's been asked of me and I, we, ha- we haven't fulfilled it yet, which reminds me actually it's here. That I'm, I'm, I haven't done it. 
uh, you know, it's been years because I think mostly I told people pretty, pretty much straight out, like, I don't do commissions, quit fucking asking. So <laughs> I, I, I think they just well, stopped it. asking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that sealed it. <laughs> pretty much, yeah. Um, but these days, but right now, there, there, there is a process that I work with that it would do pretty well for commissions, actually, that I could pull it off. But uh, it, it, yeah. Unfortunately, I can't guarantee results, but it's a long story. But the point is you, we're here to talk about you. <laughs> so, so, so you do commissions and so people approach you for these. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it can be for portraits. It can be sculptures. Some of my uh, celestial work, which is glow. So it's, it's a technique that I created when I was in Finland. So when I was in Finland, I was trying to make a glowing garden. And because I spent the whole winter there, so you only get two hours of sunlight. So it's quite extreme. So then I had this idea and I was like, oh, imagine if you know you could see the garden glowing, that would be cool. Like in MIT, they're doing that now in Boston. So they're creating glowing trees and plants because they want to plan in the future it's kind of scary so they want to plan in the future to light up streets with glow in the dark trees with illuminescent trees and plants and i had this idea to make like a glowing garden and then i was looking at like the celestial system too and and i came across birth sign flowers and i made a whole series of glowing birth sign flowers so the zodiac and then from that that was then taken with commissions for people so people wanted you know different types of flowers you know that would glow so i think for me it's still my work but then i'm just personalizing it for them well, I think people, I think the general public has gotten better. I mean, because the commissions I'm talking about are probably 20 years ago at this point. I think the general public has gotten uh, better educated on how to approach an artist to, to get a commission. So, yeah. Well, yeah, I think generally the people that approach artists for commissions are kind of art world integrated a bit you know i do get now and then some people who will approach me who come up with very run-of-the-mill stuff and i have to decline but yeah generally you know it's people who are really interested in in art and they're interested in the artist and they want to have a conversation with you and they want to kind of get under your skin and they want to know you know about you and they want to know you know what you know what gives you these ideas and what drives you. And those are the most interesting people I like to work with, you know, is when you get to really go on a journey together and really get to understand the other person. All right. Any topic that you want to talk about that I haven't uh, brought up or expand on something we've talked about previously? Not too sure. We when we covered the topic of residencies of applications. I think we talked about that on on how to construct them. 
I asked about it and I think we sort of just wandered away from that topic before we could, <laughs> as, as I do. Back full um, circle, yeah. <laughs> sure. Yeah, yeah. I'd love to hear like how do you construct your applications, whether it's for residencies and or for grants for that matter, because I know you've yeah. done some of those as well. Or for galleries too. I think I think really just you need to spend a lot of time and don't rush things and try and make your proposal, whether it's for a gallery, for a residency, for funding, make it very clear and don't waffle. <laughs> try and make it kind of short because people's concentration levels are very short. People don't have time. So you really have to try and deliver something to that person very shorthand. It needs to be concise and small. Well, like, okay, one thing that I noticed, so I was trained in America and I now live in Prague, okay? So I'm in Europe. I love Prague. I love Prague too. My wife is Czech, so it makes it easy. Lucky but <laughs> yeah, the, the, the thing I noticed was in America, we were generally taught to do flowery language and lots of adjectives and basically be a cheerleader. So like, hey, my work is great because of this and it's fabulous and marvelous and you should fund me or whatever. Whereas in Europe, I found that a lot of the grants are very um, straightforward. They're very fact-based. They're very um, uh, just, just um, they're not cheerleading. They don't use a lot of adjectives. They're very much just like, this is what I'm going to do. And if you like it, fund it. There. Yeah, yeah. I don't know about the American system. It's okay. I'll do the, ju the judgy <laughs> okay. on American. That's yeah, fine. Thanks for that, for imparting that. But with the Europe system, I think, yeah, we're much more... How would you say? We don't really shout about our, ourselves. Like we don't really... Humble. That word humble, yes. Yeah, yeah. Good one, humble. Kind of humble, but, you know, we do... We do try to state, you know, who we are and what we've achieved, but we don't, how would you say, brag about it or, you know, we don't overinflate ourselves. Whereas in America, we're taught to overinflate ourselves. <laughs> like that's what they, they say to do. Yeah. And I, fi I find that it's, it's not as good because a lot of us these days were like, if I were on a jury and I were reading one of these applications and somebody was like, hey, I'm the greatest this and I do the most fabulous, I'd be like, bullshit. You know, yeah, <laughs> you know, fuck you and the the the, the ego no. you wrote it on. <laughs> but, but I mean, that's the thing is like they they seem to want to know just like just like what are you doing and why are you doing like actually Amanda came she has this great phrase that she uses when applying for things which was why me and why now yeah she like, taught me that one yeah that's yeah, a fabulous great. one yeah she's so good. Yeah, and it just brings it home. It just makes it way more personal. Mm -hmm. And I think, I think in today's age, that's what we're looking for more. But there's two sides, you know. There's all the um, fluff and pop culture, and then there's the other side. that are more concerned about nature, about life, about where we're going, about you know the planet. We're much more trying to align ourselves with a truth than the pop culture where it's all 
glitter and charades. And I think with Europe, I think Europe's different to Britain. Britain, we're much more, um, how would you say? <laughs> I'm humble again, let's use that word humble, but we're much more kind of privy. We don't really shout out about ourselves because it, it, stoic. It, yeah, kind of stoic, but in a sense that we're much more shy or we kind of mumble. Whereas in Europe, they're much more straight. I love the Europeans. They're just like, they're just so straightforward and very direct. And the way they analyze things, there's a whole different sensitivity to the British mind. Okay, wait, I have a quick question because I think you're only like my second or third UK person. When you're when you're talking to people or doing anything, or do they, does anybody ever ask you who your mentor was? Oh, um, like what studio you studied in or anything like that? Do you ever get that? Not much. No, no. Okay. Cause in America, nobody asks that in Europe, I get asked it all the time and I'm just sort of fascinated. So I wanted to know where the UK sort of falls on that. No, I think there's an interest of like, oh, who did you, you know, study with or who did you work with? You know, because I've worked for several artists, you know, as you know, it's like a studio technician. So I think there's always an interest in that thread of whose wing were you under, you know, who kind of helped you through, showed you, you know, opened your eyes, uh, you know, and showed you skills. And yeah, I think that's quite important here. And for me, you know, I met Gustav Metzger, who was amazing. He he was a very helpful man. He was he sadly passed away a couple of years ago, but he coined auto-destructive art and he used acid for his paintings and drawings that would eat the work away. And I was making vasculum work, which was oil and I was building channels that would paint the canvases or drawings themselves and would create this this abstract drawing. And then it would cleanse itself across the canvas or paper and have these kind of rings of time. And I was kind of doing the opposite to Gustav Metzger, but I really loved his work. And I went to meet him and, you know, tried to get a job with him to be a studio assistant, but he already had an assistant. But he was such a helpful man and we had great conversations. And then I went to work for an artist called Nick Hornby and he's a sculptor, not the writer. And I was his studio assistant and I learned a lot from him. And there's other artists that I've learned from, you know, being their studio assistant. And these are important, I think, and because it helps show the thread of your kind of making of what you've picked up along the way. Yeah, so it happens a lot in Europe too. Very much so. I mean, even as a as a teacher, I even like. Well, I've approached galleries in in and around the Czech Republic, and they always say, "Who was your? What studio did you study on? You know, who was your master, basically?" And I'm like, nobody. <laughs> um, but but and and then I even went in for a te- well, I went in for a teaching job, and in my on my application form, they actually had the stu- they asked for the studio name at oh. my school so like exactly which teacher did i study under and i'm like we don't do it like that in the united states i didn't have a, a like a studio that i was in and it was it was sort of a fascinating thing just just a cultural difference is all 
Yeah. Yeah, I wonder how it is in in other places around the world. Yeah, I don't know. It's interesting. Me too. And that's why I keep asking people every time I get them on podcast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so how long have you lived in uh, the Czech for? Almost three years now. Okay, cool. Yeah. I was in Abu Dhabi for six years before that. Oh, so. yeah. I went there, uh, I think it was two years ago. Yeah, yeah. I went to Abu Dhabi. It was great. It's lovely. A lot of fun. I, I recommend you know, vacationing there is fun. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of peaceful in Abu Dhabi, in a sense. Well, I went there, you know, to, to you know, make work. But, um, yeah, it was laid back. I found it. Dubai is a different engine. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> Something yes, else. Dubai. Dubai is a 24, it's like New York City, basically. Like yeah. Las Vegas, New York City, put it together. Yeah, just on steroids. Sort of... It's just like a, a, gro a grown-up play, playground. It's, it's incredible. Yes, it is. Absolutely. I generally refer to it as like Vegas of the Middle East. Like that's, that's Dubai. Yeah, it's a good description. Yeah. All right. Um, now, last little bit, last quick little last thing for you, because um, you mentioned you wanted to be a teacher and you look forward to being a teacher in the future. If you had the chance to be a teacher right now, what kind of advice would you offer younger artists who are still sort of maybe, uh, you know, just coming out of school or having some whatever, you know, lear still learning? Okay. If they're still learning, I I would say just keep on playing, you know, just keep on experimenting. Don't try and fit into a box. Don't try to label yourself too early on. Just, just explore and have fun. And, you know, just keep trying, keep failing. Failing is good. You have to keep failing to learn. And if you get rejections, don't worry. You just have to keep on going. You know, because those rejections you learn from. So, you know, don't get put off at the first hurdle. Just keep going. Or the hundredth rejection. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> so do you have anything coming up in the near future? Oh, yeah, I do. So I have two shows coming up. The first one, actually, which is coming up, is in October. So it's at the end of October. It's in Germany. It's, it's in Kunstmuseum Wolfsburg. So it's my first show in Germany. I'm showing in a show which is about the oral history of the mouth in art and culture. Yeah, it's quite a mouthful. And the title is called In Allemund, which means on everyone's lips which is this German phrase, which is when everyone is talking about a certain thing, a certain topic. So basically, in Allemund is a phrase. And then the whole title for the show is On Everyone's Lips, from Peter Bruegel to Cindy Sherman. So it's a very big show. It's a large-scale exhibition. And I'll be showing in the section called Luftenlaut, which again, I know I don't know how your German is. <laughs> Not as good as my wife's. My wife's is excellent. Okay, we should get her in to be a translator. Mm -hmm. So Luftenlaut means air sounds and um, talking speech. And I'm showing in that section, which I'll I'll be showing with Mariana Abramovic. I think I'm showing with some other artists there, uh, Tony Ursler, Natalie LL. How how did you get this show? 
what what kind of connection or who did you know that somehow got you this? I mean, th- that's one of those kinds of things. Like, I'm always wondering, okay, that's an amazing institutional exhibition with some great, uh, you know, fabulous like icons of the medium. How did you get into that? <laughs> okay, that's interesting because I... Okay, let's go back to the <laughs> portfolio. <laughs> the portfolio. So... I'm always making portfolios, sending them off, you know, different things. So a gallerist... Wait, 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 wait. wait. Stop that for a second. When you say portfolio, are you printing a printed physical portfolio or are you making like a PDF and emails? Oh, no, I don't have money to be printing them off all day. No, I'm doing PDFs, yeah. Email. Cheap, easy, doesn't cost a thing. (laughs) Just be clear. I mean, because for the listeners, like they, they, you know, just giving them the exact way you're pulling this off i'm sorry listeners i'll be trying i'll try and be a bit more clear so yeah so sending off my folio you know via email i really send them through 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 the post you know it's a bygone era you do get some residencies actually that still require you to send it by the post and i'm like god damn we're in 2020 come on i had a conversation with somebody just the other day where they were talking about making slides and i'm like eh Yeah. Pardon? <laughs> really? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Anyways, so you send off your portfolio. So I send it off to a gallerist that I met in London, in Cologne, in Germany. And as one does. As one does. And I don't hear anything for like, you know, a couple of years. So, you know, of course, I forget all about it. And then a year ago, the gallery got in contact and they said we remembered you had works on the mouth could you send us an updated folio and i'm like okay so i just put one together and i just throw it all in well i don't throw it in but i put some new stuff in and then i send it off to them then i don't hear nothing for another six months and i'm like well what was all that one about and then six months later they say to me this is very official, being German. <laughs> this is very official. We had some curators from uh, the Wolfsburg Kunstmuseum who were looking for artists who make work on the mouth and they want to show one of your works. And I was like, okay, this is... Really? <laughs> okay, this is cool. And they said, oh, they want to show this piece and they sent me the one and I was quite surprised actually because it was a new work I just made and I wasn't fully ready to show it I mean I you know I showed it to them in the folio it was a digital work because I hadn't even printed them you know the photography I hadn't even printed it and the title for the work was I used to love you and I'm talking to the camera well well, I'm shouting at the camera those words because when I was young, I used to be a stutterer and I still stutter. Didn't notice. Yeah, I managed to kind of use different words if I know it's going to make me stutter. But what happened was the work that they wanted was a brand new work where I was, you know, shouting at the camera, like, you know, just telling all, just confessing. And I nearly didn't put that piece in the folio because it was so new and it was too close to home at the time. But for some reason, I put it in the folio. 
and they selected that and they wanted to show it. And then the curators then got in contact with me and they said, oh, well, how would you like to show it? And I said to them, well, to be honest, I've only just made the work. I don't know. And they said, oh, well, do you want to have a think? And, and afterwards, we, and we had this great conversation for like six months with the two curators. One is Uta Rukamp and Bertie. And they're both amazing. And we just worked, worked together for over like six months just talking about the work and how it would be, you know, would it be large scale, small, you know, and just printed and without frames and stuff like this. And, and they really helped to bring, to bring the work out. And now that's going to be on show from the 30th of October to the 5th of April next year. So it's a six month show and it's just west of Berlin. So it's like an hour on the train. So it's pretty easy to get to. Great. And you have another exhibition as well. Yeah. So I have one coming up in February next year, which is in your old stomping ground, the UAE. And that is in Raq, in Ras al-Khaimah. And that's for the arts festival there, the Raq Arts Festival. And the theme is on hope. And I'll be showing a diptych on sunflowers. So it's self-portraiture with sunflowers. And the sunflower is is the symbol of hope. So it's the universal symbol that was used since 1993, since the Chernobyl disaster. So yeah, that that's going to be showing for three months. So if anyone is out in the UAE, please go and see it. All right. Well, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Matthew. Thanks a lot. Take care.